Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I finally caught up with Vinska Geelings and we discussed her approach to BCP and how companies need to start paying attention to this, not just because of the pandemic. She discusses her statement and the meaning behind what is your plan if it hits the fan. She was an absolute pleasure to talk to and shares a lot of her experience over the years of developing BCP for organisations. If you're keen to learn more, then please keep on listening. Rinska, so I met you in November last year. We were both down in Melbourne presenting on risk management from different perspectives, of course. And then we've been trying to tee up a time. You were overseas and then I was overseas and then COVID hit. But now we're finally getting an opportunity to have this discussion. I think it's really important, yes, from a COVID pandemic perspective, but in general, from a BCP point of view, a lot of people still need a lot of knowledge and insight on this. But before we dive into your expertise, I'd really like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So can you please walk our listeners through your career and how you ended up doing what you're doing? Sure. Thanks, Carissa. Well, first of all, I'm Dutch. So if I say anything uh, strange, then uh, at least you can uh, you know, maybe ask me to clarify. Um, so I spent more than half of my life in Holland before I uh, kind of escaped to Sydney. Uh, I initially did a thesis project for my master's that I was doing in engineering in, in Holland. And I stayed here for nine months and I was just in tears at the airport when I had to go uh, back to Europe. So, yeah, I, I've been at within a year. I actually was back in, in Sydney with a working visa. And I first worked for a while as an IT management consultant, doing things like IT disaster recovery work and IT change management and things like that. But quite quickly, when Y2K uh, hit and also, which is for the uh, the audience that was already, um, you know, in, in full uh, force when when uh, Y2K hit. This is the year 2000, which some of you may may remember, where all the uh, the systems had to be redone, etc. And also during um, September 11, that was was sort of the time when uh, I got more and more job opportunities in the field of of disaster recovery and business continuity. And I started working at Rabobank for a while, which is a, a retail bank, a rural lending bank at the time in in Sydney. And I did some of that work there. And um, in 2006, I started my own firm called Business as Usual. And we focus on business continuity management, but also information security and risk management. So that's now almost 14 years ago. And that's what uh, what I uh, keep busy with, basically helping organizations, uh, not just in Sydney or Australia, but actually in, uh, well, over the last sort of eight or nine years, we've been over five different continents, I think, with that work. So just different cultures. I love I love travel and I love combining uh, work with pleasure. So uh, all the, the places I've been to have included really fun work, but also, uh, I don't know, safaris and snorkeling trips and playing music everywhere, which is one of my hobbies. So I uh, tend to sort of combine work and pleasure in that regard. And yeah, business as usual has given me that opportunity. Wow, that's really interesting in terms of your your journey. And I, I didn't actually know that you started your business in 06. So you've been doing this for quite a while. And mm-hmm. um, I know that when we, we spoke at the conference that you were doing a workshop, which you'll probably may be able to have the opportunity to dive into later. But one of the things you, you sort of stood behind in terms of your statements is that I love, uh, first and foremost, you say, what is your plan if it hits the fan? So I like that it rhymes, but talk Talk to me about what this actually means. 
Yeah, look, I guess, first of all, uh, making plans for when things go wrong, a lot of businesses kind of uh, stay away from it. They think it's too complicated or nobody really wants to do it. So I actually believe it can be done in a really fun and and fairly easy way and uh, much quicker and more efficient than a lot of organizations are, are doing. So that slogan of what's your plan if it hits the fan, sort of my elevator statement, I guess, is, is it kind of links maybe with my Dutch direct approach, you know, uh, actually simplifying stuff and letting people get on the table what the real issues are, the real priorities in their business, what, what they need to safeguard if an incident were to happen, you know, whether it's a flood or a fire or cyber attack or whatever it might be, or a pandemic for that, for that matter. Um, and actually keeping that fairly simple. So yeah, like I said, most, most organizations uh, make it really complicated or they don't touch it at all. Uh, a lot of organizations do the initial response stuff really well, you know, like if there's a burning building, oh, we're going to get the staff out and evacuate everybody. If there's a cyber attack, we're going to shut all the systems down. But that's not business continuity. You know, you might be safe standing outside the building, but, you know, the, the business has to continue. There's customers ringing in, there's people submitting uh, email requests, uh, you know, so you need to continue that business somehow. And that's what business continuity is really all about. So in my uh, world, that uh, that means, yeah, a very hands-on kind of plan that people can actually grab or not even don't even have to grab when it actually happens because they already know what their role is, what the checklist is in their head or somewhere in a simple way on their smartphone or on their computer or in a paper-based sort of way, and they can actually get on with it and, uh, and keep that business going rather than uh, standing there going, oh, yeah, someone made a plan for this. Where is those that 500-page document that I have to dig through? And what's my role again? Have I even been trained in that? Have I even seen that plan in action in a test or something before? Or, you know, that's the the, the reality at the moment, what's what's happening and, and people really not being, how shall I say, incident ready. You know, there may be a plan mm-hmm. somewhere that's pleased the auditors, but it's not actually something that people can grab and uh, and actually live at the, at the day of, uh, of an actual incident. And uh, the capability tends to be really low in that regard. So that's what I try to reverse in in my work. And uh, really, yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, the workshops that I do, but I do a lot of uh, disaster sort of simulations with with companies, but also a lot of gaming type elements. So we we've developed a whole heap of uh, interactive. Uh, simulation games, for example, for cyber attacks, you know, where people have to play different roles and they have to actually pretend it's happening and what uh, what are the key issues and, the, and not just technical issues, but also comms issues, etc. So letting people really experience a potential incident in a in a real hands on way that they don't they don't want to ignore it because that's actually too much fun to participate in. So <laughs> that's my uh, kind of strategy with that. Yeah. You mentioned at the start just before you said that people don't want to believe that things could go wrong. Is that an actual statement that people say to you? Like, do they really not think that things may go wrong? Look, uh, a lot of people, even though the floods, the fires, the pandemics are happening all over the place, it's still a lot of business owners that I speak to, they go, well, nothing actually has happened to us. You know, it might happen in a different city or something, or, or it might happen in a different industry, or for example, with cyber attacks, oh, that only happens to the big end of town, you know, we're too small to be hacked, you know, that kind of nonsense where it's actually, they're the most vulnerable because they're the easiest to hack, you know, <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. hackers know that. So that's the sort of perception that I'm talking about. It's not that they, they think nothing ever goes wrong in the world. It's just the specific event that's going to hit their business and that will bring their business to their knee, to, to its knees. That's what they sometimes don't uh, want to visualize and, and staff, especially they just go, Oh, Huh? You know, I've been coming to this building for the last 
you know, eight years and I always get my cafe latte and I just sit there and the pot plants and everything looks good and everything's comfortable. Like why would something happen tomorrow where I can't get into that building? So in the big and the bigger cities, I guess, you know, it's a bit more commonly understood because we have quite a few incidents that have happened. You might remember, you know, the, the Lindt Cafe siege and, you know, the armed attacker in, uh, I think it was um, Clarence Street, you know, a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. So that's where people kick in a little bit into the mode of, hey, something could happen. But if you look at medium-sized businesses, not in the city center of, of you know, or the CBD or something, they, 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 you know, if, if things have been going smoothly, they don't imagine that tomorrow everything will go wrong, you yeah? So, uh, yeah, so I still need to do quite a lot of that kind of engagement with people. And and a lot of them think if it's not that, they think, oh, without a plan, we'll just wing it, you know. We'll just ring me at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'll get out of bed and fix whatever's the problem, you know. But they don't understand, well, that's that person who says it may be a single point of failure in that regard or, you know, that that person being there at the 3 o'clock in the morning and picking up the phone is is gambling on luck. You know, it's 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 really gambling on on the right person being there at the right time. And especially if you don't have backups for people really uh, in place and, and, you know, practiced with them, then you really, uh, yeah, you're setting yourself up for big surprises sometimes, I think. So that's, I have I to ask, mm-hmm. has anyone called you at 3am? And if so, did you get out of bed to help them with their problems? <laughs> well, once I did get a call at 3 a.m. And this is at a time that it was in Uganda, where one of my clients is, um, the, the Central Bank of Uganda. Um, they actually had a, a violent attack in that part of town. And they were like, oh, my God, we actually activated the plan and it worked because I built that plan with them, you know. And they're like, oh, my yeah, gosh. The was there. You wouldn't believe what just happened. We're actually inside the building. We're locked in. But we all know roughly what we're doing. Uh, we can continue this and that. And we actually put the food the food and water supplies in place that you recommended us to do. And, you know, because I had sort of workshop with, with them what would be their key risks and their ways or the key ingredients to make that business continue. And, uh, yeah, the actual – and we actually used uh, that violence, you know, as a uh, as a scenario for uh, one of their recent tests. So it was, it was just amazing. I mean, that doesn't happen every day of the week, but it was a pretty big highlight for me. I mean, people can call me at 3 o'clock for, in the morning for that, you know what I mean? That's what I do this work for and mm-hmm. actually see people use their plans in practice. So, yeah, that was uh, that was really fun. So, mm. Wow. So but before we jump into simplifying how you go about that, what I'd like to sort of talk about is practicing the plan. In my experience, like you mentioned to, yes, it's everyone's got a plan for orders, for auditing reasons, but then no one actually practices. In my experience of working at Westfield, we were told every week we had to map out a particular scenario and then we had to talk through about what we were going to do about it. Like to give you an example, like there was one day when a guy came into the center with a machete. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you respond to that? How do you make sure uh, customers are not getting taken out by a crazy person with a machete walking around. And, and this was in Bondi, mind you. So this was mm-hmm. uh, a very premium center as well. And and I think that when I moved out of that and into more of a corporate sort of role, I, I don't know if that on-the-hands experience really exists. And I, I'm just curious to get your feedback on why do you think people aren't practicing this type of behavior? Because, yes, maybe if people working in large corporations, it's very unlikely that someone off the street is going to walk into a large, tall building with a machete. But it's about the principles about practicing what we've put in a plan. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's absolutely the most important thing, uh, whether you're in an office environment or in a situation that where you were working, you know, in a very uh, sort of open space, you know, a lot of lot of action happening. Um, regardless where people work, they should really practice that plan and, and have a culture that allows for people to make mistakes. You know, that sort of comes up for me. Like when you practice it, people don't want to practice because they go, oh, my God, I could look really bad or like I could look stupid or it's such a hassle to do these rehearsals because we have to do them, especially in office environment. People tend to. Uh, run those rehearsals in the nighttime or on Saturdays and, and nobody really wants to get out of bed for that, you know, mm-hmm. or, or disrupt their, their domestic sort of um, uh, priorities for that. So it's also about, uh, it's not just about the fact that they think nothing might happen, but also it's too hard to do. Now, I actually think, um, yeah, the practicing is the, the really the only way to get people that, that knowledge because, you know, they say when you give someone something to read, like a procedure or something, maybe they retain 10% of that over time. If you let them do written exercises and quiz questions, you know, they get those sort of uh, training tools, et cetera, maybe they retain 20 or 30%. But if they experience an actual event for real, like they were in that particular event that you talked about earlier, that sort of uh, situation, you know, they might retain 100%. And where you want to go with your exercises is somewhere in between, I guess, you know, somewhere between the 30 and, and 100%, like with a real life of um, exercise where you practice with all the bells and whistles, with actors, with fake news videos, whatever tools you're going to use in a simulation, which is what I do a lot, you know, all those, those challenge cards and things for people to really think this is really happening today, to imagine it to practice their role and have a culture, like I said, where they can make all the mistakes in the world because it's before the event. You want all the, the, the warts and all coming up to the table before an actual real incident. And you don't want people to, in, in, in a lot of organizations that I worked in, the culture is, oh, let's just um, hide the, uh, you know, the bad procedure that will never work in a real incident because we're going to fix it quickly on the fly and nobody will know, you know. And, and that's actually really bad because the root cause of that out of date or not applicable procedure is actually not going to be fixed. You know, mm-hmm. you still have that same cause there. So in a, uh, in a real incident, yeah, you're going to be still up for surprises. Whereas I've, uh, I've really been able to transform some of the cultures that I've worked in, especially in government and finance insurance companies where people were, you know, a little bit nervous, I guess, to, uh, to show the warts and all, or to say, look, this will never work in a real incident or that procedure is totally out of date. So talk to me a little bit more about culture. So I'm just curious to understand from your experience of working in a space for so long, have you seen a very clear difference in the culture towards uh, BCP in, in a corporation versus like a mining site where stuff does happen, like uh, cranes do roll and people can die from those types of things versus if you're just walking into an office, everyone's sitting on their machines and maybe gets up and goes for a coffee. But is it because that these people aren't on the front line that perhaps they feel that they are exempt from these types of things happening? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, that's that's exactly what you're saying. It's, it's actually like that. And 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 I do work a lot with with not so much mining. Yeah, mining companies too. But you know, transport companies, uh, logistics companies, manufacturing, where they do have they they deal with with hard sort of equipment. You know, assets, etc. That do break down and supply chains that get this gets get disrupted all the time. And so those people have yeah, absolutely. They they do tend to have more the mindset of stuff can go wrong here. And, but on the flip side, they also think, oh, we deal with small disasters all day long. So why would we need a plan? We'll just fix it on the fly. You know, so that's mm-hmm. the actual flip side as well. It's, it's, mm-hmm. 
yeah, yeah, both things are happening. I think in that uh, in that context, yeah. Okay, well let let's dive on in, into your experience, and I know that you deal heavily with BCP and DR, et cetera, uh, and you talk about simplifying these processes, but can you define what you do specifically about making these processes simple? Yeah. Um, I work quite a lot with uh, with big business, but also smaller and medium-sized businesses, and we do have to really focus on keeping things simple. I actually think for any business, this has to be kept as simple as possible because it's not the money-making type process, you know. It's not the hey where people get excited uh, naturally. You'd have to really add that in, and actually know what you're doing to keep people's interest for uh, for this kind of process, like business continuity and security, etc. Um, so the, the way to keep it simple, one real key thing in the work that I do is instead of making a full response plan and all the uh, recovery strategies for every thinkable incident, like whether it's floods, fires, explosions, pandemics, cyber attacks, and a whole lot. There's, there's 173 I can give you now, you know, of those sorts of uh, events. Instead oh of that, <laughs> if you just bundle them based on their consequence, purely on their impact, right? Like there could be 30, 50 reasons why you couldn't access your building tomorrow. Who cares what the reason, what the cause is when it's in front of you, when it's not a risk anymore, but it's actually now an event. You know, the, the likelihood is 100%. Who cares about the likelihood at that point? Who cares about the actual cause of it? You, what you care about is that particular consequence you're dealing with. For example, cannot use the building. Right. Another one is <laughs> cannot get access to my critical staff. I could bring, bring up 10, 15 reasons why you cannot get access to all your key staff today. You know, or tomorrow morning, it's it could be strike, it could be illness, it could be all sorts of reasons. But what you don't care about when an incident happens is actually what caused it. What you care about is the consequence of it. And I work with usually five or six consequence scenarios, no more, you know, for people to plan for business continuity. And that's uh, critical impact on staff, critical impact on their building or access to the building, critical impact on IT or connectivity of that, critical impact on voice communication. Yeah, and then the fifth one is usually critical impact on a key supplier, you know, an external uh, party that that you rely on. So if you just ask a whole bunch of different departments in a business to plan for those five, it gets a lot easier than planning for the 173, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I see a lot of overlap in all those 173 type, you know, plans that people make. I go, well, actually, you know, it's the same thing whether it's an explosion or a gas leak down the road or something. Like you, your your continuity plan doesn't fundamentally change you know it's the same sort of thing so that's what we tend to do we do that consequence based uh, planning and uh yeah there's a whole heap of other uh, trick tricks um quick reference cards for example that we use instead of the, the full you know reams of black text on white paper actually think about um what people don't naturally do in their in their response that goes on a quick reference card not the whole thing with the 50 steps that they actually know 90% of because they're using it every day sort of in their daily life. Actually, the stuff that is not natural to people. So, for example, how to assess the impact of an incident, you know, a quick sort of checklist on that and the initial actions related to that. Or the agenda of a first crisis management team meeting. You know, what are you, what are you talking about with that group of decision makers on the first meeting? That kind of checklist where, yeah, it's not a day-to-day thing that they're normally using. It's something that uh, that 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 tool, that quick reference card can actually really help them with. So that's the sort of tricks that I use. And uh, I guess the third one is using lots of pictures. You know, for example, I work with a recent building company, you know, with, on a recent project. And what we found out is 
they didn't know the key priorities of that business. If if it would hit the fan tomorrow, what are the key things that have to continue? If you ask the finance department, they said, oh, financial reporting and budgeting and all that sort of ATO taxes and all that payments. <laughs> Whereas the top actually said, who cares? You know, if, if, this, if this business is, is being crippled, we don't care about that internal stuff at all. We just want to make sure we have good emergency purchasing procedures, for example, for key equipment that you that we're going to have to buy to continue the actual services to customers that's that was found critical from that department to the top you know like so a lot of those misconceptions are there with people in a certain department think oh what i do every day is super important and critical and, and urgent whereas if you looked at the big picture they may just play a role in one small time critical sort of activity but the rest of their activities can just be parked, you know, for a few days or weeks. So that priority type um, work, you know, or prioritization work, that's that's what I do a lot with businesses and try to come up with almost like a picture, you know, like to say, okay, the first priority is we keep talking. That was in that building business, uh, you know, one of the outcomes. They said, we need to be able to communicate to people. Uh, no matter how we do it, we just want at least that capability. The next one was keep paying, I think it was. So they said, we need to keep paying our key suppliers and our and our staff. Okay, keep paying. Another one was keep safe, you know, and we had little, um, how do you call them, pictograms, you know, for each of those uh, processes. Instead of making long sentences about the priorities of the business, we just made keep talking, keep safe, and keep paying. That was the top three that they said they had to keep doing. And everyone in that business now knows if it hits the fan, these are the key things that have to continue or help continue. And the rest of my stuff can be stopped, parked. I'm not going to, you know, use a, a laptop and a mobile phone for that stuff that's not urgent. I'll give my laptop and a mobile phone to someone else who's dealing with those top three priorities. Does that make sense? Like it's, it's, it's hard sometimes because businesses and people in businesses <laughs> find what they do is super important. You know, of course they think whatever whatever they're doing is critical, but you need to also, uh, yeah, discuss these things beforehand because. It's hard enough to determine those priorities beforehand, let alone on the day of the actual disaster, you know, then everybody's going to be panicked and running around and saying, oh, I'll do what I can to help. And what is what you actually want is that some of the people actually take a rest, you know, and actually go on standby for a while or take eight hours, you know, to actually go home and, and prepare for the next eight hours when there's going to be uh, where they're going to help with those top three priority processes, you know, when others are tired, that sort of, yeah, mechanisms often forgotten, you know, the whole people factor is often really poorly managed, I think. Like who really makes a good skills matrix for their business where if this person is not there or can't can't be found or is stuck in the flood themselves, hey, which one or two other people could pick up the pieces? It's often when I get a business continuity kind of plan, if if a business already has it, which is already a luxury, but often it starts with saying, um, this plan assumes the right people will be there to activate it. It's like, what? You know, you've just dealt with a pandemic where there's loads of people not there to activate it, or at least or they're dealing with family care, or you know, they were just not there. So how can you make that kind of stupid assumption? Yeah, there's a, you need to start with your people being your key ingredient for um survival, I guess, of the mm -hmm. business. And the rest will, will come from that. I was on a webinar a few weeks ago, actually the guys up at the BCI group that you're probably well familiar mm -hmm. with. And so mm -hmm. they did this scenario-based thing. And 
it was it was relatively lighthearted. Like it was just people t- talking about what they would do when they had all these scenarios. And I think it was like uh, COVID was happening, a hospital and an earthquake. And I haven't gone through any of these in my life and I don't have a lot of experience working in healthcare from an IT perspective. So it was really, really interesting. And I think one of the things that I sort of just started off with was like, pragmatic, have common sense. If there's someone like lying dead on the ground or half dead, like my first response isn't going to be, okay, I've got to get the IT systems back up. Like it's, it's about yeah. having that aware. Do you know what I mean? Like there was sort of like, yeah. it even threw out the whole from a BCP DR perspective, it even completely threw that out because it's like, well, hang on a second. I'm not going to go leave a guy or a female laying on the floor that's hit her head or something because my first thing uh, that I need to do from a BCP DR perspective is to go and have a look at what's happening from an IT perspective. So I think I sort of then alluded to that common sense and being very pragmatic about a particular situation is is key. And it was funny when you were mentioning before about – old mates and finance thinking that um, paying the ATO and all that's important. And I get that, but then you've got to really zoom out and think, well, if someone's walking around that building with a machete or there's an earthquake or something like that, it's going to be thrown out the window first and foremost. And I think it's then uh, put back on the people to use their, their brain and their common sense to think, well, now I need to navigate this accordingly to what's really important in people's lives, uh, I would say, is number one. And I think backing up, like looking at IT and that, yes, that's important, but that's not critical at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And and the other thing is for so many things, you don't need the full IT solution. You can have some sort of manual workaround that works like a dream and it can keep you going for the first month, like paying staff. Ring the bank and say, do the same as last month and we'll fix some discrepancies later if someone's you know, changed uh, salary or something. You know, let, at least get on with the big ticket items, I guess. And like you said, I mean, life, but also, or, or health and well-being, I'd probably say, and, and information provision. Because if you know what's happening as a staff member or client or, or bystander or something, if you know what's happening and how long it will possibly last, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable than standing there going, Oh yeah, my life is you know being preserved, but I'm standing. How long will this last for? You know, so the the actual information provision or inbound and outbound comms is is really important, and that doesn't need full IT solutions. Could be in a, like you said, I mean, it could be via phone or walkie talkies or whatever. You know, actually with the with the manual workarounds that uh, mm-hmm. that are still there. So, but all these things need practice and uh, yeah, manual workarounds. People think, oh, it's the old way we used to do things. Well, if you ask a young new staff member, they don't know what the old way was. You know, I've, I've had situations where I had to dust off uh, boxes with two-way radios saying, you know, do you know what these things are? And a young guy, a 21-year-old who started to work at the factory, you know, a, a month ago, he'd never even seen those things. He thought it was out of the movies, you know. <laughs> it's like, what is that? And, and, and the batteries were not charged on those things and all that, you know. People have no sense sometimes of the priorities, but also uh, making things way too complicated and, and doing things a little bit more pragmatic, like you said, and, and practicing that and, and understanding those, uh, yeah, those options that you've got and the, the practical manual workarounds around it is, is really important because they're often cheap, you know, those solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, I, I deal a lot with businesses where we develop memorandums of understanding, you know, like uh, mutual aid agreements between businesses. Um, I've, I've done some of that stuff in Asia where it was more like an industry park focus, you know, where a whole industry park actually had provisions for each other to use, you know. So one small business said, oh, we've got really good medical kind of provisions, you know, if something were to happen to staff anywhere in this industry park. Whereas um, another business said, oh, we've got actually our own fire brigade, you know, we've got our own firefighting equipment and trucks and everything. 
And they just made a, an area BCP, if you like, uh, where they were all going to help out each other. And they were not competitive businesses anyway, but even with competitive businesses, you find that, yeah, they actually tend to jump to the party, you know, to help each other out as well, especially mm-hmm. if there's life at stake, you know, and life, health and well-being. I remember the Sydney taxi company um, gave their brand new servers and all the stuff that they just received. Uh, they sent it straight off to Melbourne where there had just been a fire and the whole um, taxi uh, booking, you know, the company that takes all the bookings mm-hmm. for taxi mm-hmm. uh, bookings. They had no communication because of that fire. And Sydney taxi company said, you take, take our stuff, you know, use it. And because there's, there's elderly people who don't use the internet and apps for bookings of, of cabs, they, they jump on the phone, you know, and this whole uh, impact was huge on that particular uh, community in, out in, in Victoria. So yeah, it's also where competitors, I guess, or, or similar business can help each other out. And, and those options are not optimally used either, I think. People mm-hmm. just don't even think about com- calling a competitor saying, hey, how about it? Let's sit down and, and see how we can help each other if something goes wrong. You know? mm-hmm. I've seen it used in, in industries where the actual industry is under a lot of pressure for survival, where they say, look, let's at least help each other because our clients will still have faith in our industry. You know, the print industry, the brochure print industry is one of those examples where every you know big store is now going digital newsletters and all that but we still find some of those things in the in the mailbox, you know, those printed things. And I know a business that does that printing and said, well, we work with our competitors like rapidly, you know, if something goes wrong, if we don't have paper or if we don't have, you know, if we have an equipment failure or something, because we want people to keep on doing this brochure, brochure printing, you know, <laughs> and not lose faith in the whole industry. So that's another reason. Yeah. But uh, but absolutely what you said, life and health and well-being of people is probably the, the prime uh, driver for that's helping each other and 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 keeping uh, keeping people safe, you know. So mm-hmm. yeah. So speaking of life and well being, how do you think organisations have held up during this pandemic? I ask this because I don't think anyone in their wildest dreams would have thought something like this would ever happen. Like even like I was travelling overseas in February and there was talks of it, but it still wasn't as prominent until I got back, which was in March. And then it was sort of like, it's game on, this is now a thing. Um, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Oh, Carissa, I have to tell you, like for the last five or so years, since all the, you know, the SARS and the, the bird flu and the swine flu and all those things started happening, I, in every single course that I run, in every single seminar, in every single workshop, would normally mention, hey, let's use a pandemic scenario for this exercise, or let's write down some key bullet points on what we will do in case of a pandemic. I've had people, especially in Australia and Europe, where people thought, this will never happen here you know, pandemic, you know, get real. We have good health systems and everything. That stuff doesn't happen here. We have hygiene and everything else, you know. And people were staring at me, seriously, what planet are you from? We're not going to do this. This is too boring or it will never happen anyway. You know, why would we bother? And now it's, of course, happened, you know, in when was it March or something that it hit all those modern countries as well. And they're going, yeah, had we made plans, we would have been better off. And I was actually tempted to put a post on LinkedIn. A friend of mine said, put a post on there. Uh, I told you so, <laughs> you know, about making plans for when it's, it hits the fan. But um, I didn't do that because, of course, you know, it's better that people get a realization at some stage. And if it's needed to go through this kind of thing, then, well, maybe that's uh, at least better late than never. Um, but my experience, like from our clients that, that we've got, um, I think the first month, about half of our clients of the organizations that I deal with were absolutely on sort of non-active. You know, they're like, oh my goodness, I need to find a way to set up a laptop at home, to plug in a headset. Where do I even find a good laptop? Because, you know, 
office works is now empty, you know, because <laughs> everybody's run over there and get the laptops. Um, how do I get a headset? How do I actually know? What, what is Zoom? Never heard of that. You know, um, actually getting their head around, getting people to work from home in a secure way with good connectivity, you know, and not actually going, oh, well, you know, do whatever you want when you're logging on from home on your on your home uh, uh, internet or something. No, actually, with the with the right security protocols, with connectivity that works, that doesn't break down, all of that. It took like a month, seriously, to most businesses that I had been talking to uh, about starting new projects. And they all saying no, or a bit about half of them would say no. We're not ready for anything. We're just trying to get ourselves ready for this whole situation and what this means to us, and getting better protocols for people to work from home. Like. It's not for everyone, you know, working from home. It's those people who actually go and work for an employer because they like the social aspect and going for coffees with their colleagues and stuff. I mean, there were people getting their heads around that for the first month, I'd say. Now, the second month, people were, I think, realizing, a lot of them were realizing, this is actually quite good, you know. I've got two or three extra hours in the day. I can, you know, take my dog for a walk when I normally have to be in the office and, you know, all of that. And, uh Oh, I'm getting a new coffee machine. It's actually not so bad working from home, you know. And then I think in the third month, it's the last sort of months, people are, uh, a lot of people are actually a bit fed up with the whole work from home and starting to look maybe too fast at how can we get out of this? We want to get back to the office as soon as possible, you know, go back to the, you know, going for lunch with colleagues and whatever. And, and kind of missing the opportunity to really look at what they've gained from this experience because, you could change your business in so many ways by this experience, knowing, hey, we have different ways to deal with clients. We can do things remotely. We have different products we could offer. We could get our staff to be more productive. Let's do a survey with all the people that are now in our you know, organization that are working from home. What, what are the top three well, tips and tops, shall I say, you know, the, the, the three things that we can improve here and the three things that were actually, uh, yeah, really fantastic that I would like to continue in my work in the future. And actually doing that navel gazing or looking at all the benefits whilst they're still in this modus, rather than jumping too fast into the thinking of, a, oh, when it's all over, we're going to go back to normal, you know, and, 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 you know, you read everywhere that there will be no, no more normal. Uh, it will be the new normal or something. Uh, but I think people, underestimate the actual um, silver lining, the, the benefit, the actual gold that they could be finding in this current situation, you know, in uh, in, in that pandemic or, or any incident for that matter. You know, if you're dealing with a disaster, look always at the flip side and what you can actually gain from that experience and go, hey, how can we make our future business as usual better? Yeah, so that's that's, I guess, what I'm uh, what I'm observing a lot. So in the first month, you mentioned people were frantically trying to get their staff to work from home. Where do you think people's heads were at emotionally? Was this probably a time in your career and a pivotal moment in your career where you've actually seen people genuinely quite fearful? Yeah. Yeah, I guess um, it's it's not a nice thing to observe, you know. And and there are some uh, clients and organizations that I've, that I've dealt with that are actually very um, flexible and they're more hey, I can do this and, you know, nothing will actually happen to me personally. I'll get myself set up. Uh, they, they sort of approach it with with really positive energy, whereas a lot of them, they did have that fear and, and staff have the, have the fear. They still actually, even later on through that pandemic and in the recent sort of times, people still think, well, 
what does it mean if we're back to normal and we're now working back in the office? If someone does get sick still, what do we do then? We go back to the old way like that we had in, during the pandemic or um, how do I even know if someone's sick? Uh, is someone monitoring this? Um, what's the role in, of security guards in this, all of this and, and of, of, of our HR people? Are they actually looking after me? Are they making sure that no sick people can enter the building? And what about the social distancing? You know, I still have to go on the train where I may have way more people around me close by than in the office, you know, and there's still a lot of uncertainty. So I think, uh, yeah, especially amongst older people, uh, but also people who look after old people, you know, older people, yeah, there's, there's a lot of fear and discomfort and, uh, and concern about, uh, about the whole situation, especially, I, I guess, in, in other countries too that, that I'm working in, you know, in, in Europe, for example, there's so many countries that have been heavily affected and the older people or all the family members of those older people, they're really, uh, yeah, they're emotionally very affected. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's okay. Let's talk about some of your insight to how you would approach uh, this type of situation happening. So let's break it into two parts. Let's talk about the pandemic, and then let's just talk more broadly because perhaps this was the catalyst to people thinking, well, maybe something akin to this could happen in the future. So if you could cover both of those, I think that that would be amazing. Look, in terms of making plans for future events. Keeping things simple, I've, I've, I've mentioned earlier, you know, so actually just focus on consequence scenarios, actually being completely independent from what the actual cause is. Because any new event, whether it's staff illness related or other sort of safety and security events, they could look slightly different. You know, you don't want to then stand again with your hands in the air going, oh, you don't have a plan for this. We've never seen this before. Think about what is the consequence of this event? Have I got a plan for those consequences? So that sort of consequence-based planning, the simple way to approach those uh, those uh, incidents and risks and, and focusing on that impact is, is one real uh, important ingredient. Focusing on those top priority processes that I mentioned earlier and having that split out with, with good bullet style kind of checklists, quick reference cards, being more ready for broader kind of combinations of things. I mean, people say Murphy's Law you know, actually exists. I've seen it many, many times, you know, where next time a pandemic strikes, it might be actually when you're just about to roll out a new product or a new service to your customers. Oh my goodness, double whammy on the same day, you know, plan more for those combinations of events. I think a lot of people in the past, you mentioned about your experience in the um, shopping centers, et cetera, right? Often it's a very singular event type approach that people make um, a scenario test around one particular thing that's happening. But what if two things are happening at the same time, you know, and it's just happening at the wrong time of the year or month or week, that type of scenario planning, I think people should do. The more people practice and and, uh, visualize those things before an event, the less panicky they will be when it happens. I've seen this so many times where people go, hey, oh yeah, we did that test. That was pretty similar. You know, what did I do then? What did I learn then? Let me apply that today when the actual events now upon us. And those sorts of uh, approaches, I think, you know, proper practicing over the months to come and using uh, different technologies and and tools for it. Because during this, the the whole pandemic phase that where I had to, you know, try to encourage organizations to keep on doing business continuity planning and testing. A lot of them said, oh, we'll wait till we're back in the office. Then we'll do this test. And I was like, well, while you're working from home, you could also do lots of testing, you know, simulate certain things happening, simulate that staff are ill. You can do that while they're working from home. It doesn't have to be, you know, when they're in the office. So, yeah, using more broader and combinations of scenarios, I think, would be a great idea. 
idea. So that links to your first uh, point, but also to the second point about what sort of scenario should you plan for. Um, I always advise people to to use believable scenarios. Don't have people sitting at a rehearsal or a test thinking this will never happen. This is, you know, I've had organizations tell me next time we're going to test for killer bees. Well, killer bees have happened in the CBD of Sydney once in the last 200 years or something. Something like that. You know, the staff are going to be sitting there going, why on earth are we planning or testing for this? So it still has to be very realistic and uh, assumed that it could happen, you know, but have that that sort of right balance of something that's uh, stretching the boundaries, stretching the imagination a bit, but also, yeah, make it in a way that people think this could actually happen. Or I have a friend who it's, it's happened to who worked in another business in another city or, you know, and come up with the right stories and, uh, and media snippets around it to actually back up your uh, your scenario and make people believe it. And, uh, yeah, and then grab it and, and do it in a practical way. Use gaming, use those fun sort of techniques that I mentioned, you know, and, uh, and I mentioned fake news videos and things like that, but actually letting people feel this is happening today. So. Yeah. So when you said believable scenarios and then you said, for instance, the B1 is highly not believable, but do you think that people put the pandemic in the bucket of, oh, well, that's not a believable thing that hasn't happened for a long time. So I doubt it would be something that could occur. Yes. Well, like I said, especially in countries where we have good hygiene and we don't have those disease outbreaks every day of the week, every year of the of the decade, um, especially Australia, Europe, that's where some of our clients are. And, and yeah, they, like I said, they don't, they didn't believe it would happen. And, uh, and they certainly, I think, see, even, even the number of deaths and, and cases, it doesn't even measure up against the actual impact on, on the community and on, on organizations and the economy as a whole. So, so some of those things you couldn't predict either. You know, you couldn't predict that it's something that has a relatively small number of cases in Australia would upset the, the economy and the way of working and all that stuff in such a mag, you know, uh, magnified kind of way. And, uh, yeah, nobody, nobody had that, uh, yeah, that, that thought, I think, mm-hmm, or that, mm-hmm. that belief it could happen. Yeah. One of the things I'd like to ask you as well is people who are responsible for BCP and DR and all these types of things that are the go-to person in these types of situations, have you ever experienced someone panic so much that they couldn't actually deliver against it? Um, yeah, you know what, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm thinking back straight away when you said that, um, I've had to make a plan for a, um, things like terrorist attacks and things like that. When I was working for a retail bank and we had overseas offices in, in Asia and we made some plans for that. And we had really assumed that the senior people, the decision makers, the super capable people from the top, you know, that they would actually know at least how to. Uh, keep guiding staff in the right direction, making sure people weren't panicking, you know, actually uh, putting that kind of guidance to the staff to to know what where they're roughly sort of heading during an actual incident. And I'll tell you what, the people who we had that faith in, they were the ones that were actually completely lost, <laughs> you know, actually didn't know oh absolutely gosh. what to do. The people who had a sort of the, the, the silent, the quiet types, you know, the quiet achievers, in the end, we did a uh, like a debrief on the event when, when there's an actual, you know, you may remember the um, the Australian embassy was, was you know, att- attacked in Indonesia at the time. And, and we were well, with that business sort of adjacent to that building. So we had all these mm-hmm. staff members being completely in panic mode. But the ones that in a few minutes time actually picked up the pieces and went, OK, we have a plan for this, don't we? We wrote that plan. Let's activate it. 
the silent ones, the quiet achievers were the ones that actually went on with that plan and actually followed the process and, and actually made the whole recovery site ready in before actually due time, like I think in four hours time, they had all sorts of things set up and the leaders, the top down sort of, you know, the crisis management team type uh, people, we found that, oh, they had actually uh, distanced themselves in the past quite a lot from testing, you know, because they thought, oh, well, the staff can just, you know, do all of that. And when it came to to that particular day, they were really struggling, you know, they're like, oh my goodness, how do I make decisions if half of the executives are not there? You know, mm-hmm. now I have to make decisions on behalf of someone else, on, on behalf of someone else, and um, they didn't have all the information coming up the line that they normally would. They would normally ask staff to bring a report, you know, for, for whatever the impacts were. Some of that stuff was not happening because of the actual major impacts. And yeah, you could see that actually the the people that you had the biggest faith in sometimes react in a in a panic situation completely mm-hmm. opposite. And, mm-hmm. and I can't actually blame those people either. Like it's all about the process, right? You optimize the process. So those people are actually feeling more equipped when something happens or when they know they've got a backup in place for themselves because they may not be the right person who, who lead in a disaster, but they're, they're maybe great at leading in business as usual. That's fine. You know, it's completely acceptable, but something had failed in our process where we had this blind assumption that, oh, the really capable top leaders, etc. They all they'll just magically know how to feel comfortable, and that was not the case. You know, so yeah, I've absolutely seen that where people were panicking and and just not knowing where to start, really. Yeah, mm-hmm. and feeling, mm-hmm. feeling insecure about their own response to the whole thing and how they would affect staff in their organization if they didn't say or do the right thing. And yeah, that's uh, there was a lot of pressure on them too. So yeah. I think it also comes down to persons sort of they had adversity in their life. And I learned a lot when I was at Westfield, like I had seen every single thing and that included a guy actually jumping and uh, committing suicide. And I witnessed that. Um, and I think that you are in panic, but then your sort of brain goes into this adrenaline mode. And for some, I don't know, it was bizarre when I think about it, it was a long time ago now. And I just thought so logically about what I needed to do. And I we had a radio and we were talking to each other and they told us what to do, put the tent up and do all these types of things because they had ultimately gone through these types of scenarios. But I guess even the person being on the front line and experiencing that, uh, I think it's actually maybe more resilient than over time when something does happen because it's like, well, like unless someone's kind of dying, like we need to really think pragmatically about what we're going to do because I think that some of the things that I learned, I think through that process has made me, like I said, more resilient, but just more pragmatic in my approach on how to deal with things. And I think I'm very, very grateful for those experiences. And I think that when people are panicked in a situation, perhaps they just haven't been through enough adversity in their life. And I think that over time that that sort of decreases and it's not that you become insensitive to it. It's just that, that you're well aware on how to deal with those types of situations. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. Um, but we can't possibly count on enough people to actually deal with real adversity to then hire them and do these roles, you know? So I, of course. Also, you know, it's also something that really can be trained. And, and like I said, with simulations and things like that, but also I tend to actually, uh, and, and to come back to the actual role of security in, in all of this, um, I absolutely love working with security, physical security people on some of these challenges and to actually deal with things like putting a good scenario for a test together and, and for a rehearsal, you know, of a plan because they have the mindset, um, just like, for example, the, the defense department probably would have of what could people be up to? What could actually happen that we haven't seen before? They have more of that type of thinking. Whereas if I deal with a, uh, a person who's more in an operational role in a business, they'll think, 
what has happened before? What have I dealt with regularly? Oh, that's what I should probably should make a plan for because it probably likely will happen again, you know, because mm-hmm. it's, you know, history has shown that it has happened. Whereas security people tend to think more, what, what have I, what have I not seen? What have I missed? What may be around the corner? What may be happening tomorrow? Mm-hmm. You know, and that mindset is also needed for this, especially for scenario planning to come up with creative ideas that are still very realistic, but not uh, based on what's happened repetitively in the past. I remember having to plan for uh, a particular business and they, they said basically every year uh, they had been using the scenario of a power outage. And I'm like, what every year would people be completely overly comfortable with that scenario? That's just one scenario, you know? So think beyond that and, and keep it realistic. But yeah, uh, I think security people are fantastic to brainstorm with, you know, on these topics without having, well, some of them obviously have the actual adversity experience, but you know, that what you mentioned earlier, but some also haven't had it, but actually can think along those lines. They've been mm-hmm. trained and they've been practicing that type of thinking. So it's, mm-hmm. it's fantastic for me to have access to those people in, in the work that I do because together we come up with, uh, it's like one plus one is three. You know, you come up with, with real magic from two different angles and it actually becomes a fantastic uh, solution to, uh, yeah, especially for, for disaster drill drill scenarios and things like that. That's uh, That's been fantastic. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think just security people in general are just probably a little skeptical. And then I think they've seen things happen before. So I think it helps them sort of think, well, anything's possible, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's where different uh, line of thinking does come into it. So Rinska, this has been an amazing chat. I think um, you have given us a lot of insight in terms of BCP on the broader sense as well, not just always focusing on security, because I think that that's part of what we do as well in terms of that BCP planning and from a disaster recovery point of view if people would like to reach out to you because they've got a question that perhaps i didn't ask you today how can they go about doing that yeah look so if they search me on linkedin for example they'll find me as a person there's there's only one so that would be great linkedin i use a lot and otherwise uh, our website www.businessasusual.com.au there's a lot of information on there as well uh, on, on the work that we do on my LinkedIn I've got a heap of uh, free articles on some of these issues that I've raised and for people to have a little uh, play with always very happy to, to chat to people and hear your thoughts on some of these comments that I've given and what Carissa and I have been talking about again I really do appreciate your time and your insight thank you Rinska no worries at all it was a pleasure thanks Carissa Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.